Hello, hello, welcome to another episode of the Comeback Team, our 20th episode, and I got my good friend who's taken a little bit of a trip down south, he's finally back on the show, Arthur Mascarella. Hello, good morning to you, you look terrific, God bless you, you look wonderful. I'm, I'm hanging in there, Arthur. I'm trying to keep the show going in these times of crisis, but I'm happy to have you back on. I just wish it was in person, you know? <laughs> so here we are. We're in the virtual world like yeah. anybody else. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, if Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel got to do it, who am I, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you make a good point, my dear friend. Here we are, the comeback, the comeback kids, the comeback shows right here. It's our 20th episode. Is it really already? How do you like that? Man, you've been yeah. busy while I was gone. That's great. I had some amazing guests. and uh, yeah, no yeah, Listen to me. Yeah. And me, no one's more amazing than you, baby. Oh, you're wonderful. You're so kind to me. You really are. You're very kind. You're kind to an old Italian man in, in times of stress, in times of trouble. It's a beautiful thing, really. Go to heaven for that. Thank you. So when you left before, you didn't have a mustache. You got the mustache back on. I mean, what's going on with I did. Uh, well, I mean, you may or may not know that I do the show Billions on, on Showtime. And, You're in Bruno uh, mode. I, I play, uh, yeah, I play uh, Bruno, the pizza parlor owner. And that character calls for a mustache. So while I was down in Florida, I got a call from production. Brian Koppelman, David Levine, the showrunners and the producers of the show, called me and said, Arthur, this is the mustache call. Which is a you know it's a running joke. Every time I get the mustache call, it means I got work. So uh, yeah, this is going to be their fifth episode. Um, I'm sorry, their, their fifth season. season. Uh, I was scheduled to do the ninth episode. They got seven in a can, and uh, when they halted production because of the virus. Now I got good news for you, by the way. Uh, I know you're a big fan of Billions. Um, I understand uh, Brian tweeted yesterday that they're going to go with the seven shows they have in early May. I think it's like May 2nd or May 5th. They're going to go on air with the, with the seven they have and let that run and run out. And then when we come back in, we'll do the rest of the season. So well, that's interesting. Uh, you're going to be seeing a show, at least seven of them, starting at uh, the beginning of May. Nice. Yeah, no, I, know, I know you're a fan of the show. Dad. We love that. Big fan. A little bit, a little piece. And of I, I mean, I was watching that show before I even met you, you know? Well, I thank you so much. <laughs> what happened? <coughs> Don't worry, I'm thank okay. You. I'm not thank dying. You very, thank you very much. Let me get some hand sanitizer. Put it I'm on not dying. Mouth. I'm not dying. <laughs> so uh, very so nice. there, was some, there was some running jokes here with, uh, with the governor, you know, Governor Cuomo. Yeah, Governor Cuomo, yeah. They, uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but when, they, when he was wearing this one shirt, they were zooming in. They were zooming in on his nipples, right? And they're saying that his, both of his, this is what they're claiming now. They're claiming that both of his nipples are pierced. Okay? Uh -huh. are, we, are we going for a particular demographic today? No, no, but, like but no. Politicians uh, pierced nipples? Yes, yes, no, no. So, so I just we have a niche it, audience today. <laughs> it made me think about the show Billions. That's all. It made me think about how that one guy, he's, he's the prosecutor, then he moves up the ladder. Yeah, right. Paul Giamatti's character. Yeah, sure. And he's got a lot of weird fetishes and stuff. So that, it, it, that's where it took my mind. That's all. It's just, it was a resemblance. I understand. I understand. Yeah, no, well, I, I understand. I heard that. I, heard and I don't know if it's true. I mean, we don't know if it's true. It could have been I don't really care if it's true. He can have anything he wants as long as I don't have. 
he can pierce anything he wants as long as I don't have to know about it. <laughs> I really do not give a shit if it's true. It's got nothing to do with me. As I said, however, if this is the S&M section, section of the show today, then we'll go with that, you know. But, Arthur, uh, you were you were you were down in Florida for a while. I should have well, been I should have been doing this with you once in a while. I don't know why the hell I didn't think of it. It took the coronavirus to bring me into the digital age. You know. All right. Well, look, listen. The main thing is we're here today. Uh, we're coming to our our, our viewers, um, current viewers, looking for new viewers, obviously. But we're coming with good news, with uh, some upbeat stuff. Okay. Uh, granted, look, we all know where we are. We're in a situation here, okay? We're stuck in a house um, with, with, with or without people, uh, with people that we love or people that we don't love, but we're stuck in. And we, the only way we're going to beat this is to stay away from other folks. Wash your hands, keep your hands away from your face, blah, blah, blah. We know all of it. Um, the media is full of people asking questions, questions, questions. I think this is the 17th day of us all being in. Um... I've been in for longer. How many questions can you ask about this thing? I mean, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of negative stuff out there. You're talking about Cuomo, all right? Cuomo's the governor, and he's getting a lot of accolades for saying a lot of things on TV. But when, when Cuomo comes on and says 80% of the people that they put a respirator on will die with it on. Governor, you're a nice guy. You're doing the best you can. Please don't say bullshit like that. You're making everybody even crazier. Okay, who do we know? That you have no facts. You don't really know that's the case. You just say a thing like that. I mean, I mean, not to not to sit here and back him up, but the right. three doctors, the three doctors I spoke to, are confirming what he said. Okay, all right, good. Buddy, right. listen to me. Uh, doesn't give people hope. I know. It doesn't give people hope. It, it does. You, you understand what I'm saying to you? It, it, does, it does more it harm than good. If, if you know bad news like that, keep it to yourself. Okay, the people that are watching and probably aren't on respirators right there, they don't, they don't need to hear this kind of bullshit. Talk about positive stuff. There's so much positive to see in the world. Oh, you're stuck in your house. Okay. Um, if you're a gambler and you're behind on your debts, guess what? The leg break is from your bookmaker can't get to you. Okay, what is that, not a positive? That, that's a good thing. And you probably hope the bookmaker gets the virus and everyone that knows about it gets it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a way, you understand, it's a wipeout. Exactly right. The bookmaker checks out from the coronavirus. You understand, you, you call up your bookmaker and tell them, listen, before you go to bed every night, remember to bite your nails. <laughs> you know, they got to wake up with something the next day, okay? You, they're letting you slide on your rent. Many places are letting you slide on your rent. April 1st. That doesn't help me. Well, listen, it goes, <laughs> it, it, I understand it goes towards the back end of it, but, you know, we got to be around for the back end. So it helps you on your rent. A lot of people, they're, they're letting them not pay their bills, okay, or they're, or they're, they're cutting back on the amount of money they have to pay their bills. They're forgiving interest payments. Or they're delaying, they're delaying it. They're right, they're delaying. All right, very far. Look, let's face it, our whole lives are delayed, okay? My meatballs and spaghetti and patsies are also delayed. So then, yeah, that's where we are, okay? But we're delaying stuff. Uh, if you got a shitty boss, guess what? You're not seeing him. You got nothing to deal with. The guy can't follow you into the men's room and time your breaks. He can't break your balls. You got 10 million people out of work as of this morning, okay? All told. There was another, you know, 7 million more that went along with last week's unemployment. Uh, so there's that many people out of work. There's a lot of money going to be disseminated to them. Maybe not as much as they make, but it should keep everybody's head above water. So there's good news there. Um, 
you don't have the virus. That's very good news. It's amazing. Okay? That's very good news. I don't even have the sniffles. Okay. I mean, I don't want to be. Listen, I don't want to be. I don't want to be all doom and gloom. But you know, we're not gonna. We're not gonna focus on it. But I'm gonna be honest. I gotta be honest with you. Yeah. I'm having, you know, I'm going through a little bit of a rough time, and I've lost a few friends in less than three days. I've lost about five. I understand. People. That. Yeah, we've communicated. I'm I trying not to focus on it. It's 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 really starting to hit home, mm -hmm. and it's hard not to be a little nervous, man. It's you know, I got an older father, but it's not just older people. That's the whole thing. So to me, I feel like we don't know all the facts, and I think that uh, people need to exercise extreme caution. Extreme I, caution. I'm in total agreement with you. Total agreement with you. And you know, so look, the facts that we have and the information that we have is enough to keep us from, from, from getting this. Okay? One of the scariest things for me, and I get it, is that um, people that can people can be carriers of it and yet be totally asymptomatic. Okay, so you could be with somebody who you who's perfectly healthy. Perfectly happy, healthy, going around their normal life, that's a carry and can give it to you. That's scary. Okay, that's scary. Um, I, would, I would think the best thing you could do, the way to get around that is to walk around. You'd be, you have young children. Have a dirty diaper with you. Okay, and if you see somebody like that or if there's a stranger to you, put the diaper under their nose. If they recoil, they can smell it. Okay, they don't have the disease. If they go... Hey, uh, you know, have a dirty diaper. <laughs> you understand? They go, wait a minute, this guy's got no sense of fucking smell. Get away from this guy. You can smell if you have a healthy nose. Yeah, you, you can, can smell, smell shit. About, if you can smell shit, you're healthy. At least about four or five feet away. <laughs> <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying? That's how you walk around. Everybody should walk around with a dirty diaper. Listen, you, your life and. God willing, one day you're going to start going into more of these stories. But whatever it is, eventually, whether you do it with me or yourself, you've, we kind of touched it a little bit the first time we met. And, mm. I mean, polio was terrifying, yes or no? For me personally, yes, it was. I, I would think for most of the people that were... And, and for the whole country. And, and you, you were oh, around yeah. 10 years old. You were around yeah. 10 years old. For the people that are listening, because I feel like that might give them a little bit of hope. Try to retrace the steps of what it felt like, how people were talking, how scared they were. Because, I mean, listen, I'd rather die than be put into an iron lung. Mm. You, you get my point? Because once you I went do. in, that was it, right? You, you were in it the rest of your life, right? Pretty much. I, I, I look, I don't know. I, I think an iron lung could be equivalent to what we know as a respirator today. Okay, the respirator is a small, smaller, like okay? But an iron lung um, helped you. What happened with polio, part of what happened with polio is that your fingers go in my face. Oh, there it is. No, really, what? Yeah, I'm showing, I'm showing a picture while you talk. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, you see the iron lung? Uh, I see it. You know, this is a close-up for me. So it was just a bunch of wires and stuff. You, you really couldn't see it. If you could show that same picture but pull back a little bit, you could see actually the enormity of it. You see it? I do not, in any event. Um, I'm showing an iron lung to the viewers, so go ahead, explain. Okay, fine. Uh, it helped you to breathe, okay? That was an apparatus that helped you to breathe, and uh, mostly you're pretty paralyzed. Um, when I was a kid growing up in East Hall, look, I, I was born and raised in a tenement building in East Hall. There you go. There's a, there's a better picture of it. Um, you had polio. Now, this wasn't just 
uh, uh, concentrated in East Harlem. I mean, it was a worldwide problem. Polio was everywhere. Um, tuberculosis was everywhere. Um, cancer, ganga, as the Italians say, was everywhere, okay? And then they, when you had cancer, they just diagnosed you and sent you home. Gave you some painkillers. And uh, Let you there die. was another smell in the hallway. You could always smell. And when, when you lived in a tenement building, every floor that you went on smelled differently, depending on if, if, the, if the Polish lady on the second floor was cooking, you could smell Polish food. On the third floor, if the Italian lady was cooking Italian, you could smell that. You know, you knew each floor would smell differently. And mostly pretty good, you know, of cooking. Except if you had somebody dying of cancer, didn't smell too good. Um, tuberculosis, you'd go to your coffee, a friend, and there would be a, a, an orange sticker, a round orange sticker on the door. Quarantine, as we have today, the same word, quarantine. And that meant that anybody that was in the place, in the apartment, had to stay there, couldn't come out, and no one that was outside could go in. Don't Let's ask you a question. If it, was, if it was a whole building, did they quarantine the whole building? They did not. No, no. They quarantined the specific apartment. So that anybody that was in the apartment, if you had brothers, sisters, whatever, you were all stuck in that house. And I don't know how long it lasted, but it lasted. Um, and then, of course, there was polio. Now, what was, now, I mean, it was obviously, it was around before I was born. By the time I was cognizant of it, I was probably eight, nine, ten years old. Uh, I realized something was going on when friends of mine didn't show up for school in September. I mean, they, you, know, you know, you know, when you're a kid, you're playing, everybody's running around the streets, you do what you do, what you do, you don't really miss anybody until you go, wait a minute, we're back at school, where's Louie? Louie, he, got, he, got, he, 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 he contracted polio in June. What? And, and you saw, but there was not, there were five or six seats empty and it, and it was scary. And then of course you had the pictures, you had the March of Dimes, the polio, uh, charity, um, you had uh, pictures of these monsters that you just showed, these monster iron lungs. Uh, believe me when I tell you, a 10-year-old kid looking at another 10-year-old kid in an iron lung, paralyzed, with a, with a mirror tilted at an angle above his head so that he could look at the mirror and see backwards and see who's standing behind him, at least see another face, was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. And that was there, man. I mean, that was... That was that was lived right amongst. And they didn't know how people. And nobody. And they didn't know how people were getting it. Was make. Uh, another scary. I mean, one of the scariest things is nobody knew where the hell it came from. You didn't know how you got it. Okay. It turns out that it it was um, manifest in um, public pools. All right. It, it's why they it's why they invented chlorine, which is it's still in our pools to keep diseases like that from manifesting in, in a public pool. It turned out, just in the environment that I grew up in, uh, my swimming hole was the fire hydrant in front of my building. So there was a beautiful pool, it's still there, it's called Jefferson Pool, it's on 112th Street, across the street from Rayo's in East Harlem, um, that was open every day. And I was up that way every day, but I never went into the pool. See, I had, I had a, there was a loop when you were a little kid living in a tenement, you were kind of broke. So I used to go to PS99, which is across the street from me, on 100th Street, First Avenue, excuse me. And I would go there for lunch. My mother would give me a lot of breakfast and I'd go there for lunch. Lunch was usually a boiled potato, a large, a large pile of sauerkraut, and uh, a container of milk. They didn't have the hot dog, no hot dog. 
<laughs> but, but you understand? But that's what that was. So you had that every day. And then at three o'clock, if you went up to Jefferson Pool on the corner of, I think it was about 114th Street and First Avenue, it was a little tiny kiosk. And if you were a sharp kid like I was, street kid, you knew that if you went up there, you got three little um, chocolate chip cookies every day as a little boost for you. So I was up there every day, but I never went in that pool. I had my fire. So you were in and around disaster the whole time. All the time. But I, and you I never just, knew. And it's kind of like this virus. People are out there, they don't know who has it. You got to be careful. You got to really stay ahead of the game, ahead of the curve. Yeah. Well, look, I still think my smell test is where it's at. You Listen, uh, you know, people thought people thought I was crazy. Arthur, I pulled my kids out two weeks before the rest of the school people did. Two weeks. You know, you mentioned that to me. That was brilliant on your part. What was that? Uh, when people were running around for supplies, I already had what they were hunting for. I doubled up on my reserves when there was a quiet. Before. So basically, what I did was I bet everything on Italy. Uh -huh. when I saw when I saw what was happening on Italy. I said, "This is code red. You don't shut down the north of Italy." For shits and giggles. You get my point? Yeah, no, I get it. No, no, no. And if they close the north, they're going to close the entire country, and there's no way that it's not here already. So when people were going out there fighting for toilet paper, I was doubling and tripling. I boogied. I got the kids, the family. We got the fuck out of there. Right, right, right. I found, out the, I found out the kid's recess teacher died. Now, my wife sent the kids. What? My wife, My wife sent the kids back to school one day. During that two-week period, right? You're a moron. You're this. You're that. You're overreacting. Okay. That's what your wife said to you. Hey, yeah. Well, she, you look, she was excited. Also, she was. She was. Look, she was confused. Like we all. She didn't use that language, but I'm saying, you know, she didn't right. use that language. But you know, right. you're, you're overreacting. You're being, you know, crazy. I get it. I get it. So I came back home. I flipped out because I just had this gut feeling. Yeah. Know? And I said, do not, if you send the kids again to school tomorrow, we're going to have a big problem. I pulled them out again. And then once the announcement started happening, she didn't want to come with me right away either, where we are now. We're three hours away. Right. Now she's going, thank you. You were smart. You knew. You could see it. I'm sorry I gave you a hard time. She gave me a very hard time. Well, listen, that's what, that's what is a father and a mother. Okay, that's what your job is, buddy, is to see, believe it or not, is to see into the future. You're raising three boys. You understand? That's what you have to do all their lives. You understand? Yeah. Is to see, not my today. Friend, my, friend, my, friend just lost his, my friend just lost his son. And, 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 and let me just go back and, to the individuals. And, and the teacher died. The teacher, and listen to this. Yeah, Thank the, God the one day, the one day she sent the kids back to school, uh -huh. the recess teacher wasn't there. <laughs> not luck right I not understand they didn't, no buddy they didn't go in the pool I understand they walked to the pool every day but they didn't go in the pool I understand that, that's, that's what triggered work. that's what triggered that yeah yeah that's God's well listen I always say God's had me by the ear my whole life he's been come over here you dopey bastard bringing me here bringing me there you understand I didn't know what I was doing I've had a successful hysterical fun life but I believe what I tell you I didn't orchestrate any of this you understand it's all been you God's know how you say look at, look at the you know how you say look at the positive the, here's the positive that I see. Yeah. I see families forced to come back together. Sure. Spending time together. Really focusing what's important, that money don't matter. Nothing matters if you don't have your health. Yes, very bright. You know, and, I, and, I, and you know, as a spiritual person, 
and I know you, you're a believer yourself, I think people have no choice, but they're being forced to look up to the heavens and pray for help. And I like yeah. that. Well, I like that what people. Uh, look. <laughs> look, we're going to be in a better place. We were in a better place, and we're going to be back in that better place. All right, that's what you have to understand. This is a temporary situation. It's not fun, but it's not the end of the world. Okay? No, it's, it's not just, the end of the world. It's a temporary inconvenience to a lot of people. They're going to solve it, and we're going to be back to normal. All right? Think of it, think of it this way. Um, by Halloween... October the 31st, the biggest selling costume will be the three EMTs with the, with the face mask dressed in garbage bags. That's going to be the, big, the biggest seller for a Halloween costume. You understand? That'll be right up there. Um, yeah. You'll be back to look at everybody be back trying to get their medical marijuana license. So, you know, there's stuff to look forward to. There's, there's a lot of upside in, the, in, our, in, our, in our future. Okay, you just can't beat yourself up. The internet is just full of people that have opinions, that are their opinions, their own opinions. They're tied down, they're locked down. Maybe they're broken, busted out even before they start. They're losing they're their minds. You understand? Yeah, but what's what's happening, or what can happen if you allow it, is these people can get into your head and screw you around with their crazy ass thinking. Okay, the idea with this thing is to find other things to do. You were always probably a hundred times when you were getting ready for work one way, gee, I wish I could do this or I wish I could do that or I'd like to do this. Well, start doing it, okay? Start by making your bed. It's a good start. Make your bed, spruce yourself up, take a shower, take a shave, take your pajamas off, put a shirt on, put a pair of pants on, okay? If you're locked in the house with your wife or your girlfriend, hey, Make it a date, only it's, you know, a date over Cheerios. It's, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Make it special. Put something into it, all right? You have experiences, keep a diary of all of the stuff that's going on. Your emotions, how you feel, how you don't feel, what you wish for, what you can't have, what you can't have. Write it all down, you understand? So that someday you look back on it, you laugh, or you teach somebody something from it. Make use of your time. You know how everybody knows that when you're busy, you're working. How many times have you gone to work and said, where the hell did that day go? Jesus, I, I, I sat down at my desk. I picked my head up 20 minutes later. It was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Get busy. Get busy. The time will go, go by. Hey, listen, man. What's today? April 3rd already. Jesus, where'd the month go? It's <laughs> true. You know, you have to, you know, you have to think positively. Listen, you, uh, you know, you've been through a lot of very stressful things in your life. I have. And you managed to keep this very positive uh, outlook, which I think is the most important step, right? Like to... It's a humor, buddy. Laugh to, to protect the mind. Absolutely. I mean, as, just as a police officer, I can only imagine the things you've seen in 21 years that you were... You were uh, uh, so was these things you learned how to do? I mean, were you always this way? I mean, did you, did you read books? I mean, how did you learn how to program your mind? You know, you, you've been through some really crazy things in your life. I mean, how well, have you programmed your mind? I mean, how, how, do you, how do we help someone who maybe doesn't know how to think this way? I mean, what do you recommend? I mean, what, what helped you? I mean, how did you learn how to think like this? Did you always well, just think like this? Listen, it, 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 I, look, I always had a good sense of humor. I always saw the lighter side of things, okay? Uh, my wife, who was absolutely born on this, used to be said, born on the sunny side of the street, all right? I was, to a large degree, the same. 
uh, I've always been kind of a happy guy. I mean, I, I always managed to see the light side of things, even as a kid. Growing up in a shitty neighborhood and being broke and my old man having problems with the law or one thing or another. And they, it never, it, I didn't like it, but it never really stopped me from doing anything. In truth, the, the, the largest foundation of my life was my family. All right? I was lucky that I had as many uncles as I did. I had a bunch of uncles all back from World War II. I was born in 44. They all came back in 45 who had been Anzio, who had been on Saipan. Yeah, here's a ring. Can you see that ring right there? That ring went ashore in Saipan with my uncle Louis de Pasquale. Okay? Uh, I had an uncle Johnny that was on a, a he was on the Arizona and then he was in, in Pearl Harbor and it was on the Missouri in Tokyo Bay when they signed. You know, these were tough guys, believe me when I tell you. All came back to East Hall with money in their pocket. And my mother had five sisters and they were all married, all of these guys. And here I was, a little boy. Come on, come with me. And that's who I had. I, there were surrogate fathers while my father was not in my life. So I had those guys who taught me about pool and who taught me about motorcycles and who taught me all kinds of stuff. Now these were, your, these were from your mom's side or your dad's side? No, my, my mother's side. My father's side, my father had three brothers. Uh, one of them, my uncle Johnny, his older brother, John. Uh, oh, don't like that, don't People would make fun of him. He's a big strapping guy. Big, six foot four, big muscular guy. But he talked, he talked like that because he was in the artillery. He was in North Africa. Boom, boom. He went ashore at Normandy. Boom. You understand? He crossed the Rhine into Germany. Boom. With the fucking cannons. That's why he right. talked like that. He couldn't hear. His eardrums were blown out. You understand? These are tough guys, man. So I had those guys as role models. When my father was back in my life, my father was a wonderful guy. He did. He, my father had made a mistake in his life. It cost him dearly. When he came back, he loved his son immensely. And he was a wonderful father to me all my life until he passed away a few years ago at 88 years old. Kissing me on the lips and loving his son. And, I, and that's how I felt about my father. Okay? But then again, to get back to your question, I joined the Marine Corps at 17 years old. Okay, now if you want to, that was a that was a Arthur. That was a choice, or you were drafted? Oh no, 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 no! I joined the Marine Corps in high school. I joined two weeks before I graduated high school. I joined the Marine Corps. I graduated high school. Well, I joined the Marine Corps June twentieth of nineteen sixty-two, and I gra and I graduated June twenty-seventh of nineteen sixty-two, and on July twenty-fifth of nineteen sixty-two, I was on Paris Island, getting. Getting my guinea ass kicked. It was good. I didn't even get onto the island. They drove us. I never was in a plane before. They flew us down to South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina. Our bus picked us up. We drove, I think it was 80 miles, something like that, to Paris Island. We got to the gates of Paris Island. I'm sitting next to a dear buddy of mine, that buddy, Billy O'Cool. He wound up a lieutenant down in Suffolk County, 3D. And a private. An MP who is a private is in full regalia. He gets on a bus and he's walking up and down the aisle. And I, and I must have moved my arm. I, and he said to me, is something wrong with your arm? Because I moved it. I went, what are, you, what are you, a fucking doctor? What are you worrying about with my arm? I got my first slap across the head with a fucking nightstick. You understand? <laughs> and this was the start of my tenure at Paris Sound. Did like, you say, what the fuck did I get myself into? <laughs> oh my God, listen, it was kid shit. After, I, I had no idea what was waiting for me once I got in the other side of that gate. Yeah. 
Harris Island. Uh, look, I was I was not I was not a rocket scientist, but I was I was in the squad bay on PR maybe the second or third day, and I realized that this place was a complete violation of the Constitution of the United States of America. You can't do this to an American fucking citizen. So I made a plan to escape. But I wasn't going home. I mean, I, 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 I joined the Marines to get away from home. So I wasn't going home. I was going to tell John Kennedy, the president, what was going on in this island. You can't do this to people. What are you, crazy? You can't. If I talk, you beat the shit out of me? Whatever. Did you hear the first amendment? Are you crazy? <laughs> and I'm dead serious. I was getting off that island to go to Washington to tell John Kennedy. Yeah, they sent you to a different island, though. <laughs> shit. Oh, my God. I got out. All right, all right, all right, get in bed, all your maggots, blah, blah, blah. We went to bed. I waited a little while, and I got up, and I went, this is it. I put on my boots, and I went out the door. Now, remember, I was only there a day or two. I really didn't understand the function of Paris and how it all worked. What happens is, out of every platoon, they take two or three guys, and they put them on what's called fire watch, and they walk around between the barracks, and the barracks are close together, and there's many of them. I was in the 2nd Battalion, Platoon 249, and there were platoons all around me, as they say, in close proximity. And each one of these platoons had two or three guys out, which means there were 75 guards around my building, four feet from where I was. And they all got M14 rifles, and they're looking to kill somebody. And me, like an idiot, I walk out, I'm snooping and pooping, I'm going to make it. I made it about three feet. I got challenged by 90 guys. Walt, who goes there with guns? You understand? I ran, <laughs> ran back in the barracks. I went under my fucking covers and I went, oh my God, am I stuck in this place? Did they make you do anything the next day for trying to get out? No, no, they never found out. No, they would have hung me. What are you talking about? Well, look, they, I have, I had, I, I, I called my senior drill instructor, my senior, my senior drill instructor was a guy named Gunny Doyle. God bless him. He must have had 50 years at the Marine Corps. When I met him, and as a private, as a 17-year-old recruit, and uh, somebody, we, we were far, we were getting, we were getting sightings, sightings, sights on our on, on our rifles, and so we had. They give you three bullets, and you get these. It's called a 900-inch course, 25 yards, and the guy next to me fired three bullets onto my target. So my target had six holes, and his target had no holes. <laughs> but that guy, his that's name a was problem. Armand, he was a boxer. He was a great boxer. He fought the Golden Gloves and everything. And he used to fight what's called smokers in the Marine Corps. They have the, the toughest guys in this company fight the toughest guys in that company. And Armand could beat the shit out of anybody. The thing is, he couldn't shoot a rifle. You understand? So I don't know how we made out in the shit, but I hope they were close to him because he couldn't shoot you, but he could knock your teeth down your throat. Anyway, Armand was a favorite of the DI. So the DI, instead of getting on my, his ass about not shooting on my target, he got on my ass, and in the middle of all of that, he said, what are you thinking at? And I looked at them, and I said, sir, the private thinks the senior DI is a fucking scumbag. <laughs> and that was problematic. He took off his campaign hat. Everybody's seen the old Smokey the Bear hats. He took that hat off his head. That thing was made of concrete, and he smacked me across the face with it. It was like getting hit with a fucking paddle off a boat and said, they knocked me right over. And... I don't know, for two, three weeks, 
Wherever the platoon marched, I had to march 25 feet behind. I wasn't allowed to be with the platoon. <laughs> You're always a fucking rebel, huh? But I had, I had, yeah. I Look, I had a great time. Believe me when I tell you something. I had one of the absolute most fun times of my life on Paris Island. In fact, the whole Marine. See, the thing is, I didn't really want to be in the Marines. I just wanted to go through Paris Island. After I got off Paris Island, I said, can I go home now? They went, no, 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 no. You got to stay the eight years you signed up for. Yeah, so got another place I, to had, send you. I had such a wonderful time on Paris Island. My son joined the Marine Corps. My grandson is in the Marine Corps as we speak. He just shipped over for another four years, got promoted to sergeant. He's attached to the F-35s as we speak. You got a lot of Marines in the family. You understand? That's, we're a Marine Corps family. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Paris Island, well, there you go. See, after PI, after that shit, after what you run into, everything else seems kind of funny. Okay? Everything else is really not that bad. Okay, it can get worse. It can get a lot worse. Believe me when I tell you that. But uh, so that's why I have generally an upbeat attitude. You know, look, Dad, I've had a lot of breaks in life. People have helped me out. I've never been a, I've never been hard to get along with. You know, I mean, uh, for the most part. So you know, when I went on the cops, my father told me to temper justice with mercy. You know, remember to lock up or let more people go to your arrest. And that was fine with me because I wasn't a big arrest guy. I never, when I, when I went on a job, they gave me 25 tickets. They issued 25 tickets in the police academy with the strings back in the day with item on the windshield wiper. 21 years later, when I retired, I still had the original 25 tickets. I had never given a ticket in all the years I was on the police department. It wasn't my, I hated to get tickets and I refused to give anybody a ticket. I wouldn't do it. You know, that's just my attitude of the way, you know, my little rebellion, you know, for what it was worth. But, uh, but you went, I mean, you went into a whole nother world, though. Well, look, being a New York you City cop in the, the late corner, 60s. You were, yeah, you weren't sitting there right now traffic. I mean, you went deep undercover, man. But that was later on. I started out in uniform. I started out in a radio car. My partner was Ray Kelly, the former police commissioner. Wonderful, wonderful man. You still talk to him? Well, look, I mean, no, I don't. But when I see him, we're happy to see each other. We do see each other. Well, look, we're like, we're like all old guys our age. We see each other at funerals. Let's face it. I mean, you know, you don't really socialize with people that much anymore. Maybe years ago I saw him. There were rackets and parties and things like that, and I would see him more often. Funerals, cops that I knew that got killed in the line of duty would see each other. But now, you know, mostly Ray does what he does and I do what I do. And, uh, you know, the twain don't meet very often. But I can say that when we do meet, we're very happy to see each other. We go back a long time, a long ways together. He did a, he did a, he did a great job for New York, man. Ray Kelly's the best. He did He's an amazing best. job. I don't know what the fuck is going on right now, but that team... Well, look, man, I, I mean, I don't know if, where his mind is, you know, where he's physically. He looks great. I mean, I see him on TV. It looks like a million dollars. He's no puppy. Uh, but, boy, how, how, he, he's, re he's retired, no? He's retired now. No? I don't think Ray Kelly ever retires, man. He's a consultant. He's a lot of things, Ray. He really is. Um, very sharp guy. He's a city. You know, he lives in the city. He did a phenomenal job. He did a phenomenal job. Buddy, would you like to see Ray, Ray Kelly as the mayor this time around? I mean, yeah. look, I don't know yeah. if he's—I don't know if he's got the pipic for it, as the Jewish people would say. If he's got—if he wants to get involved again at that level, I mean, it's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of activity, a lot of running, a lot. Of, and 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 remember, he was the PC already. He was the first deputy commissioner. 
the first step is actually the guy that runs the job. Yeah, uh, he's That's the second in command. Yeah, you understand. He runs the police department. The my uh, best friend, my best friend's mother was the first dep of the Department of Buildings. Okay, great. She wrote the whole construction code for the like city. Was, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they do. She's right? she stepped down from that position, but she like like you said, she still consults. She still yeah, helps the city out. That, that's what you do. That's what you do. Ray Kelly was a, a, a Vietnam Marine. He was a platoon leader the first time. He was a company commander the second time. He's a Harvard a Harvard graduate. Guys, uh, genius. Harvard Law. A bright guy, Ray. Believe me, I tell you. And, no, you see his, and you see his face. You see the bush on that guy. He's not like one the, to run away from. He's like I mean, this. Yeah, yeah. Ray, Ray, always, Ray, Ray, Ray took looking. a couple. Of, Ray took a couple of the snot locker with his day. You understand? He's a tough customer, Ray Kelly. Believe me. I mean, he's not only tough. I mean, I didn't know he went to Harvard Law. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, he's brilliant. Guy. Yeah. But anyway, look, I was partners with him. How many years? Of, I was with Ray Kelly probably about three years. Uh, the third wheel was Bob G and Ali. Bob, Robbie Bob was my. One of my, maybe the best friend I ever had in the cops, Bob Gianelli, he rose to the rank of uh, chief of patrol. Uh, Bob, when Bobby retired with 60, she's what did he have, 42, 43 years, he was 65, 64. Oh no, I'm sorry, 63. You got, in the, in the New York City Police Department, you can only be 60. When you hit your 63rd birthday, you gotta retire, which is ridiculous. But that's, that's, that's a rule. At 63, Bobby went out. He was the chief of patrol, three-star chief. He was in charge of every single uniform guy in the city, whether it be uh, regular New York City PD, housing, housing police department, transit police department, every uniform guy in the city. Bobby Gianelli was their direct supervisor, which was a big job. So you had the police commission on one side of me. You had the chief of patrol on, uh, on the other side of me. And me, a, a dopey guy walking around buying drugs buying drugs off the fucking cartels. So that's what we were, that, look, that's what I was cut out for. You follow me? They couldn't do what I did. And I couldn't do what they did. And uh, it worked out very well together. Probably the, the greatest, I, I'm a jewelry guy. I'm an Italian jewelry guy. The greatest piece of jewelry I have is a little detective, a replica of my detective shield. Little gold ring that was given to me. Most cops buy them. Most detectives buy them. Um, was given to me by the chief of detectives, Bill Ali, another wonderful dear friend, was the chief of detectives during nine, when 9-11 hit, and Bobby, and Bobby Gianelli chipped in and bought me that ring. If the ring cost 100 bucks, it's a lot. Believe me when I tell you something. I got diamonds. I'll flush down the toilet before I lose that ring. How many guys got the detective ring that was given to them by the chief of detectives and the chief of patrol? They gave it to me for my 65th birthday when I was, I was retired 20 years. Okay, that's they were they were good friends, and I was a good detective. I did a good job, so they they promoted me again on my last day at the police department. I was a third grade detective. They gave me second grade again. They they promoted, they promoted me to detective and then promoted me as a detective, and I retired a second grade detective at NYPD, which is a quite an accolade going back to the eighties. But we started in the sixties with the you know the Black Liberation Army. F-A-L-N, name a group, you know, we dealt with all of them. I mean, I don't want you to go too crazy in this because you might be working on some things of your own and stuff like that. But uh, can you give just a little nugget, just a little taste? You had mentioned to me, and I don't know if I'm correct, I might be wrong, I don't remember, but you were kind of involved during that time 
that the movie that Al Pacino made, The Serpico unit. Yeah, I mean, he was playing uh, Bob Lucy. Now, you actually knew these people that that movie was based on? I did. I was in that unit. It's called Special Investigations Unit. If you want to talk about that era and that, that group of people, you better serve thinking about the movie The Prince of the City. Okay, that was I know with, the movie. Uh, that was with uh, Tree Williams, who did a wonderful job in that. He's a lovely guy, too, Tree Williams. I worked with him after that. Very, very nice man. You feel that um, movie's accurate? I'm sorry? Did you feel that that movie was accurate? Uh, well, yeah, or, look, as accurate as any of those kind of movies are. You understand? They, they have a lot of poetic license. Bob Lucy was a guy that was working... Uh, <laughs> I look, look I, I knew Bob, I didn't know Bob Lucy from when he worked, the Pacino character. I didn't know him when he worked uh, in narcotics or in playing clothes for that matter. Um, there was endemic uh, corruption in the New York City Police Department at that period of time. This is a long time ago, um, as was depicted in the film. And also in the film American Gangster. With Denzel Washington. Well, yeah, that, that, that's a whole, but that's that's a complete bullshit story. Yeah, like that was just. But was that also? Pieces. I mean, that was also a little piece of it, right? I mean, of that movie was about. Well, that was Frank Lucas and the Country Boys. That was a whole other group. But Frank Lucas was a North Carolina guy. He was mentored by a gangster in the city called Bumpy Johnson. That goes back into the fifties. <clears throat> Frank Lucas became a major drug importer, <clears throat> as depicted with Denzel Washington. Frank Lucas went to uh, Vietnam. Uh, he had friends that were in, that were sergeants and there were uh, ranking, ranking uh, enlisted people in what was called, in a war, there's a group, it's called Graves Registration. These are guys that go onto the battlefield after the battle is over and reclaim the bodies of dead American troopers, okay? America, when you die, you don't die when you're standing at attention. You die in very many awkward ways, and then you freeze that way. Everybody knows about rigor mortis. Their job was to go out into the fields and to, and to make your physical, what's left of you, your remains, fit in a body bag, okay, without being too explicit. You can understand what that might entail. What Lucas did is he went there to Tanzania Airport, met with his people in Saigon, and then, in, and then enlisted their aid in smuggling heroin uh, from what was then called the, the Golden Triangle, it was heroin that came in from Burma, Laos, and Thailand, came together and smuggled pure heroin back to the States in body bags, okay? And then they were, that was picked up on, on our end by people that were in his organization at whatever airports. I think they came into JFK or Dover, wherever it was, military places. And the body bags did not go through customs. No one searched anything, of course. So that was a clean. And what he did, the second brilliant stroke, which made him as effective as he was, was that he scrambled the dope down from pure to dime bags. Okay. In, yeah, in you, spoke about, you, spoke a, you, you spoke a lot about this on that one episode with me. And I, I'm sorry I took you off on that tangent. But what, what I was trying to hit on that point was just about the Serpico movie, The Prince of the oh, City, to go back there and, and the American Gangster film showed corruption in the police department. Yes. And you were in some of these units that these movies portray. I was. 
and you came out clean. I did. <laughs> so what, what I'm saying me. is, what, what was it like to work in that environment? And I'm sure you saw some of this shit going on. That must have been an enormous amount of pressure on you, you know? I had no pressure. I had, I had no pressure whatsoever. I have, I have Bobby Ginelli and Ray Kelly as my partners. We were not on. And you, were, you, said, you had said to me in the past that there was only three of you that made it out of that unit. Are these the three you're talking about? You three? No, no, no. no, no, no. I was past them. No, look. Look, there, there's, there's a progression of things that happened to me. You're talking about movies and you're talking about times and the job, levels of corruption and one thing or another. Serbigo was one problem. Okay, that was basically the plain clothes guys, guys, guys tasked with enforcing prostitution and gambling. That was Serpico, okay, and, and the endemic corruption that he says he perceived in the, in the police department. And then there's the prince of the city. That's Nakai, that's SIU, Special Investigation Unit. These are the guys that connect via illegal wiretaps. They connect the package. Remember, no technology yet. The most dangerous time for a drug dealer is when the drugs and the money come together at the same time. If somebody can find out where that minute is, that minute, that second, that passage is going to be, they can score both the drugs and the money. And that was the forte, according to legend, of the special investigation unit. Okay, that's what they would do. It's called the wet dime trick. You go up a pole... And every telephone, and look, this is technology then. Of course, it's not. Now everyone's got a cell phone. But back in the day, up, up a tele, telephone pole is there for a reason. You open up a panel on the top of a telephone pole next to an apartment building, and there's a thousand pairs of wires. All right? And so what happens is, all right, I think that you're dealing. I find that your telephone number. I go up the pole that services your building. My partner calls your number. I know you I surveilled you. you. You went out. You're not home. Nobody's home. My partner calls your number and he lets the phone continue to ring and continue to ring and continue to ring. And I take a wet dime. I make it wet with my tongue and I keep touching the pairs until it, I get a spark. When I get a spark, you notice somebody's on that line. And you take an alligator clip, two alligator clips and a headphone and you put it on. Hello, Sadie, I'm going to the supermarket. You know, it's the wrong one. You hang up. You go to the next one. Wet, you're done. You get to a certain one. Boom, the phone is ringing. You put your pairs on. Hello, Harry, is that you? Yeah, Bobby, that's me. Good, thank you. Now you got the pairs. Now you put alligator clips on those wires. You run the wire down. You run the wire to a secret place, maybe down in the basement of a building. And you put a voice-activated recorder with those wires, it's anytime that you come home, you're a drug dealer. Hello, Johnny. Yeah, I, I got four hundred. I got forty shirts I want to deliver. Yeah, I need the twenty-eight thousand a shirt. You think they're talking? They used to think they're talking code. All right, good. I meet you at the JFK Airport tomorrow in the parking lot two, one o'clock. Great. Boom. Hang up. Done. Every day, the guys would come. They would monitor the wire. They would hear that. The next day, they're there. They see you drive up. They see another schmuck drive up. Boom. There's the cross of the dope and the money. Bingo. They got both of you. Now, they let you go. They don't lock you up. But they score the money and they score the dope. That's how that whole worked. That's how that worked. By, according to legend. I don't know if that's true, but. <laughs> so you mean like, so these guys, what you're saying is that some of those cops were like, fuck it. Let me just rob them and get the fuck out of here. 
<laughs> well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Play check is fucking with him. <laughs> yeah, you hope you catch him again the next time. <laughs> it's a score, my son. You know the score. You make your score. Did you, you ever see any of these guys? That, I mean, were any of these were any of these cops stupid enough to roll up to work in nice new cars? And I mean, could you see the money on them based on you know what was going on at that time? Could you tell that some of these guys like where the fuck are they getting this money from? Uh, I, I can't say that. But no, look, look let, me, let me qualify something. Let me, let me, for you, seriously, let me qualify something for you. The Special Investigations Unit worked out of, uh, I think it was 110 Center Street, just, just north of uh, the criminal court building on the opposite side of the street. Anyway, um, I was assigned to SIU. My first day there is when they all got locked up. I knew guys that were in the unit. As a matter of fact, they had gone through the police academy with a couple of guys that were deep undercover that wound up in SIU. And the first day that I went there, the first day, I sat down. I was at my desk. I was getting acclimated. They gave me a little space. They I'm typing and everything. The, the, the captain was there, the lieutenant, the, the executive officer, the cops, this, that, guys that were in, guys that were in. The next, the first day, the next thing I know, boom. By, in today's uh, lexicon, it's called IAD, IAB, Internal Affairs Bureau, IAD, Internal Affairs Division. In them days, it was called PCCIU, the Police Commission's Confidential Investigations Unit. When PICCCIU got you, you were fucked. Okay? <laughs> that means they had, you, they had you doing something bad. And uh, 10 guys from PCCIU came in the door. They used to wear snap ring hats and white raincoats and shit. It was kind of, they had, they had their own look back in the day. And when you seen them, you knew that it was them. They all come rushing into the place. And the next thing I know, the commanding officer is walking out past me. I'm sitting at a typewriter typing. He walks by me, rear cuffed. He's locked up. He's got his head behind his back, handcuffed. Next thing I know, the executive officer comes out. It was a woman, beautiful girl. I knew her from, the, from when, when I worked uptown in Harlem. She worked in the same prison as me. She walks out. She was in a juvenile aid bureau back then. Now she's in SIU. She walks out, handcuffed. I'm going, what the fuck is going on here? Yes. <laughs> I don't know what to find. I didn't know what I was doing my first day there. One of these guys walks over to me with a list, and he goes, what's your name? And I go, police officer Mascarella. And he goes, uh, you all right, no problem. I went, oh, thank you. But I'm typing, and he takes the, the, the D, it's, it's called a DD5. It's, it's a report, DD5. He takes the fight right out of my typewriter. <laughs> and he takes it with him. I went, holy shit. How many yeah. people got, how many people were taken out that day? Guys, there were 75 guys in the unit. 54 guys got indicted. <laughs> yeah, that was Maurice Nanjari, who was the special narcotics prosecutor. And uh, I never got to, I mean, I never had a problem with anything. They put me on a, actually, they put me on a, uh, there was a detail, there was a reporter for NBC, I won't mention his name. Uh, he's not around anymore, but he was, he was a very nice man who had tripped over a case. He thought he was doing a case in a JDL and wound up in a case with very bad, tough other people. And um, they were afraid he was going to get clipped. They were afraid he was going to get killed. So, and he lived out of Long Island, and, as did I. And what they did is they put me as his bodyguard or his family's bodyguard. I didn't stay with him. I stayed at the house. And kept an eye on him and his, and his wife and his two sons. And I guess I was there for about six months, maybe. 
while all that was transpiring in the city with guys getting locked up and guys getting indicted, what was going on. I was nowhere to be found. I was in Hicksville, Long Island, every day. And uh, so I missed all of that. I mean, I read about it. I knew the players, but I wasn't there for it. Again, I went for the cookies, but I didn't go in the pool. <laughs> you understand me? I was so close to it that I could smell it, but I just didn't touch it. Thank God. God that, thank God is right. Very interesting stuff, but uh, I look forward to hopefully one day elaborating on that in your own way, in your own medium, you know? Of course. People, people, people love to hear this stuff, man. They, they just this history. Man. Well, listen, I, I, I lived through all of this as did many other guys, successfully and honestly, and uh, had no problem with anything, you understand? And, and, and that's how it was. I came out of the job after 21 years, almost 21 years, a second grade detective, and... Uh, was very proud of my service and I was very well received and remembered by my friends. You know, look, I'm an old timer now, but if I walk into a bar full of these guys, they still buy me a drink and I, and, and, and me, them, you follow me. And that's how, look, we're street guys. We understand that. Um, you characterize a friendship by, yeah, I drink with him. And the undercover unit, we, the, the saying was, yeah, I would walk with him. Okay, if they liked you and you were good at what you did and they observed it, they said, no, no, Nascarello, no, I'd walk with him. That meant, that you could be an undercover with him. Uh, you know, he could be with you in the undercover work. Uh, in, in, in regular street policy, would I, I, I would drink with that. I don't drink with everybody. <laughs> I won't drink with everybody. There are certain people I drink with. You I drink with. Other people I don't drink with. A lot of other people I don't drink with. If the stock market was a person, I wouldn't drink with it. It's too much of a pussy. You understand? I get it. Okay. Arthur... I hope I, I, I hope I entertain you and, and I will and I, I think, will, uh, it was a little bit anyway, take your mind off all this other bullshit, but for 10 nah, minutes. Nah, I mean, I was just picturing life in that world, you know, I mean, yeah, this is the closest. I saw a really interesting post yesterday. Someone said, this is the closest we're going to get to the 90s. To the 90s? Everyone staying home. Families are together. We're not distracted by all the, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't see the correlation, but whatever. Yeah, buddy, listen to me. That's a guy sitting in one in, in, a, in, a, in a one bedroom basement apartment in Bushwick, rolling up his cuffs and smoking fucking weed, and do, and doing pronouncements over the internet that seventy million people will watch. You don't know what the fuck was watching. Just because we'll get to the nineties, what the eighteen nineties? What's he talking about? The nineties. The nineties. Everybody was getting fucking stoned and getting laid. Can you give us, I guess, one little, I guess this would be, because, you know, listen, everybody loves the show that you were on, right? Not to go backwards, but The Sopranos, for us, it's a cult classic right. forever. Yeah, yeah. Especially from New Jersey, especially from New York. I mean, for us, that show will never, that show for us is we could turn it on tomorrow and watch it all over again. Yeah, you I know? understand. We love do. it. Can you give us maybe, man, just one amazing memory, maybe something off stage, something that, you know, from the behind the scenes. We already know the show, but something that's just, when you think about it, it brings a warm feeling to your heart. Maybe about Jimmy, maybe about a certain cat. Just a, just a nice little memory, something that you maybe you haven't told anybody about. Something that just sticks out in your memory. I understand what you say. Let me think a second. Shut up a second. There's about nine million things happening, right? <laughs> Give us one. Um, Jimmy Gandolfini. I can't even tell you how much I love that man. What a lovely, lovely person he was. What a talent. My God, what a talented man. He would have been an actor until he was 500 years old, that kid. Um, at the end of The Sopranos, 
Jimmy Gandolfini gave us, certain of us, not all of us, and I have one inside. He gave me a gold watch. I think he bought 40 of them. And by buying 40, he paid over about 11,500 a watch by buying 40. So the watch is worth, it's an 18 karat gold, shoe bold watch. Beautiful gold, alligator strap. And on the back of it, it says, Superanas, rest in peace. Thanks for the good work, Jimmy Gandolfini. Another one of my prized possessions. That one, I'll, that one will go down. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll save that up for uh, my great, great, great grandson somewhere. I'll be worth a million dollars sometime. Facts. He you used know, to. But uh... his generosity and sweetness was like that. I met him. The first time I met him was my, the first episode that I was on was the, was the beginning of the fourth season. If you remember the pile mine segment of the show where we were at Monmouth Racetrack and the horse and all of this stuff. Yeah. Pylemon was the horse. Um, I was bussed out from New York. I finally got hired. Uh, uh, um, David Chase finally hired me. <laughs> I went out to Monmouth and uh, they put me in a hotel room. We were going to shoot the next day. They put me in all of us, you know, several of us in a hotel room. And uh, I went out to the bar and who's at the bar? It was just me at the bar. That guy walked, there's a pole there, and this guy walks up. He's on the other side of the pole, but two feet away from me. He's going to begin to feed. So I looked at him. I went, hey, how you doing? He went, hey, what's happening? I said, let me buy you a drink. He said, no, let me buy you a drink. I said, hey, gogoots, let me buy you a drink. Gogoots means squash. It's, in a, it's, a, it's a word of affection in Italian. Gogoots, let me buy you a drink. And he looks at me. He goes, you son of a bitch. He says, that's what my father always called me, gogoots. Just, like just like that. We had a drink together. And we were asshole buddies the whole time. I, was, I did 43 episodes, 86 episodes, I did 43. And I worked with him the whole time, many times. At the end of it, on December the 12th, 12, 12, 12, there was a huge concert for charity in Madison Square Garden. The Sopranos were on the telephones. We were manning the phones. And the word came to me that Jimmy wanted to talk to me. He had something to talk to me about. He'd be there later in the night. So I said, yeah, all right, fine. So I was doing my phone thing or whatever. And then by and by, I was up in a box and I'm having a vodka. And I see him across the way and he nods to me and he gives me one of these. And I said, hey, and I walked over there, got the waiter, got him a vodka. And he looked at me and he says, what are you doing for the next two years? And I went, what do you want me to do? He says, I'm doing a new show on, for HBO. He says, in all, the, in all the scenes that we've did together, you never try to rob a scene from me. You never try to get up all over. He says, I want you to come on the show with me. Be a, probably a couple of years' work. Now, I didn't know at the time that he was producing the show. It was called The Night Before, I think, or The Night After, something like that. He was producing and had shot the pilot, and he was bringing me in with him. Damn. And I agreed to do that with him. Lovely man. And uh, two weeks later. I can only later, imagine. Two weeks later, he was dead. Two weeks later, he passed away in Italy with his with his son Michael there. Crazy. So that was that was that was a real heartbreaker. That was we were all we were all went to St. John's the Divine, St. John the Divine in New York. We had a funeral there. My God, in heaven, there were thousands of people there. It was really shocking and heartbreaking. Really, really, it was all of us. You know, do you know? Every look, everybody loved Jimmy, and Jimmy loved everybody. But certain of us were particularly close to him. Kind, good man. You were definitely you were definitely one of those people. You were very connected to him. We had, look, we had a father-son relationship, sort of, or, you know, older brother, younger brother relationship. Was there a favorite place? I mean, Arthur, was there a favorite place that you guys would go over to hang out or eat dinner? I mean, what, what, was there any, is there anywhere that you guys, did you have a ritual? Did you? 
the, the, the Sopranos hung out in Pestis, which is down a little west, 12, little west 12th Street, down in the village. I mean, it's went out of business now. I think it's come back. It's now. reopened. Maybe it's reopened. In a different location. I don't know. I don't know where it is. We used to go to Pestis. I think it's uh, on the 11th. We would, go, we, we would go to the Ear Bar, which is down on Lower Man, down on Spring Street. It's, it's the bar with the word is out. The light is out of the million. So instead of said bar, it says ear. So they left it that way. It's famous as the ear bar. That was one about once. Uh, and any number of eating establishments and drinking places. You know, we're, we're really just like a band of uh, fun guys knocking around. How about in Jersey when you guys filmed? Did you have places you like to eat from? Uh, I didn't. Let me think. I, I, I didn't. The only time I shot in Jersey with them really was the uh, the strip club, Satin Dolls. That's yeah, out of about 17 someplace. But, uh, uh, I know the place very well. Santa Rios, the pork store was, <coughs> was in Newark someplace. I shot there a number of times, froze my ass off because it's just the storefront. There's really nothing in it. Yeah, yeah. And there's no heating. There's no, you know. So that was tough duty, if you could find it. Um, and, of course, the, the pile mine segments, you know, those, that was about a week's work we were there uh, with the horse. But I, mostly I didn't shoot in Germany. Mostly I shot around locations in the city. Yeah, because you were, yeah, you were, that's, your character portrayed that more. Well, yeah, look, remember, we had, we had the Super Cup Studios for years. I mean, that, that show had, that show had a 10-year run. You know, it was seven seasons, but over the course of 10 years, literally, chronologically. And uh, we had all of the sets, all the, that was, fam, that was what was really cool, too, was being a Soprano fan, watching the Soprano for four years, and then being in Tony's kitchen with Carmella doing a scene or you know what I mean being in the place so you watch you watched the show before you were actually on it oh yeah sure of course it was the Sopranos were you kidding I mean you I knew, knew him. you knew yeah, how to you knew how to cast oh yeah well New York actors buddy I mean you know Paulie Walnuts Michael Imperioli uh you know Big great, Pussy Vinnie Pastore you know, all guys we knew uh, uh you know great you know, actors, we, had, we had been in 10 movies together before that you know, so we were we weren't strangers to each other. I would never even compare myself to the man, ever, because the guy from you know the guy's a fucking legend, man. Who are you talking about now, Jimmy? Talking about Jimmy. Can I can I tell you something? I'm not saying this to be cute sure, or sure. to be cool and anything like that. You were close to this guy. You saw him every day. I swear to God, I'm not lying to you. And I hear it like fucking at least twice a week. I fucking hear it. I don't know. You know something? You look like fucking. You look like the. You look like Jimmy from The Sopranos. Everyone keeps telling me this. Well, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't look, you don't look unlike him. I see. I resemble. I, you really think there's a resemblance a little bit? I do. I do. Yeah. Wow. I do. Well, look, he didn't have a beard. Like I say, him. you know, you look like James Gandolfini. You kind of resemble James Gandolfini. Right. I'm like, okay, that's a. I take it as a compliment. I'm like, fucking, that guy's like one of my heroes. Well, you, you know, you know, this too big. You're a big guy. I'm a, little, a you know, I'm a little husky. I'm Jimmy, a little husky. Yeah, Jimmy was a big fellow. Believe me when I tell you something. Jimmy was he had tall a like me? Was no, he tall no, like no, me? no, 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 no. Again, the feeling was 6'1 or 6'2. But he six was two. a big, big man. His head, his head was huge. <laughs> you, you understand? I mean, he had a big face and a big head. But your, your face is a little more um, sharper. He had a softer look to his face. Yeah, was, yeah. You understand? You're, you're, you're maybe, it's the, maybe it's the forehead. Maybe it's the forehead. Yeah. Well, that is what you got in a forehead, pal. That's that's called an eighthead. <laughs> <laughs> they have like an aircraft carrier, right? Can land yeah. aircraft. 
You understand? I want to, I, I mean, you know, these are, these are the things that people love, man. You know, this is why podcasts are so popular. People love that sure. they can, you know, you can go off on tangents and talk about things that you can't really fit in a half hour or a 10 minute interview or, and, uh, you know, you were right there. You were close. You were a big part of that show. You want to, you want an award for that show, right? Yeah, so, I guess yeah, it was nice. That was and, very nice. Uh, that was thinking. But 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 you know what I love is that you're on another show that I I mean I I really I mean the work that you've been on, the shows that you've done. I mean to me these are these are like, I don't watch. I've told you this many times. Yeah. I don't watch a lot of TV. <laughs> and you're on two shows that I fucking love. Like yeah, I'm love, very lucky, like, very lucky, very lucky. Like I watched the whole entire. Like I didn't like you know I would I I would watch the whole thing to not miss. You know, I did love Homeland, you know, Showtime, Homeland. Yeah. I missed the last so, four or five episodes. I liked, I, I liked Homeland, and I was a fan of Homeland. And, of course, I got to work with Damian Lewis. I remember on Billions, Damian Lewis and I, our asshole buddy, exactly. right? We know each other. I thought well. it was a little crazy the way it started. A lovely guy. But they really no, but what was happening on Homeland is that Carrie's um, character, what's her name? Uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm John, I'm John Brunson. Their claims, their claims are clear. Yeah, Claire Danes, Claire Danes, Amazing actress. I met her when she was fifteen. She was going to play. We were writing a script. This is thirty years ago. We were writing a script. Myself, John Battaglia, Johnny Johnny V from The Sopranos, Artie Bucco. Um, what the hell was the woman's name? She married the. Uh, um, she was Arthur Miller's daughter. I'm trying to think, obviously her last name is Miller. I forget her first name, Sarah or something like that. She was a producer of some note, a writer of some note. And we would meet every Saturday. Dominic Labandosi is a great character actor these days. Claire Danes, Johnny Phenomenal. B, myself, and this lady, Miller, would meet every Saturday to write a script to write a piece of it, to write it, the air live, write it. We meet down in village every Saturday. This went on for like two months. Then all of a sudden, one Saturday, I went there, the door was locked. I'm going, where is Rebecca Miller? I went, what happened to Rebecca Miller? You know, where's the, you know, what happened? You know, we were doing so great there. What happened to everybody? She married Andrew Day, the, what do you call it? Andrew Day Lewis, the actor? Yeah. She married him. She, she moved to a castle in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> What the fuck happened to the script? That's a, he's an amazing actor. And Claire Danes was going to play my daughter. She was just a little kid, God bless her. She was just a young girl. She was a, a puppy. And she became a very fine actress. But he's amazing. I got to, to get to the original point, I got off Homeland, and I loved Homeland, don't get me wrong, because she was, her character was driving me out of my mind. I would put Homeland on in a good mood, but at the end of the fucking show, I wanted to punch the shit out of my wife. <laughs> and I love my wife. <laughs> <laughs> she just put me in a fucking bad mood. I kicked the cat in the ass and fucking throw stuff off the balcony. She would have a phenomenal job. She played the character phenomenal. No, no, she was great. But I wanted to kill somebody. By the time she, I got done, I wanted to strangle her or someone. I mean, real CIA people have written that it's a very good portrayal of what their life's like. You know, very accurate. But it was me. Unbelievable. I'm a bit undercover. And I say it now because I can't because I don't give a fuck. Because all the guys that would have been after me, they're all 90. They're going to come up the stairs. They'll never make it. <laughs> if a guy tells you that he was a deep undercover in the CIA, 
He wasn't. Okay? Nobody that did that will really tell anybody. But you're the only guy I have ever talked to about this shit, really and truly. Because I find it kind of fun now. I mean, it's just, it's so far after the fact. It's so, so far past all of it. Um, but, I mean, <laughs> you see some guys that they, I did this and I did that. I'm retired from the mafia. How the fuck do you retire from the mafia? You understand what I'm saying? There is no retirement from the mafia. It doesn't happen like that. Well, let me ask you a question. I have some of these guys came on my show while right. you were down in Florida. Right. They came out of jail. Now they're giving lectures about why kids yeah. shouldn't go into the mafia. I mean, do you think someone like that can really reform if they've killed 30, 40 people in their fucking life? Well, I you look, I, I can't pay. It's, it's up to God to pass judgment on people, buddy. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I guess they can. You we know, don't know. I, I, you never know. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm not breaking anybody's balls. I, you know. You understand? Um, I don't know how you could do it. Can can that guy still go to? Well, then okay. Uh, I'm doing classes and keeping the kids from joining the mafia with doing bad things. All right, good. I'm done with the class. Yeah, you know what? Let's go to Rayos and have something to eat. <laughs> you know what I was going to say? It ain't a good idea, baby. <laughs> what do you think, man? You think uh, you think I could play? You think I could play the role of an Albanian gangster? Yeah, sure you could. You look very threatening. You keep pushing your hair back like that. You look very hey, threatening. Hey, where's the fucking money, man? <laughs> <laughs> that's not how it's done. You don't do it like that. But I understand that. You understand that's that's the that's the Hollywood characterization of a guy collecting money. That's not how you do it. What you do is you say to a guy, the terminology is simple, okay? You ask the guy for the money. You say, this is how it works. You go to the guy's office and you go, Benny, you owe me a $5,000 payment. I'm going to give, on Monday, I'm coming to you. I'll meet you Monday, i give you the money. Hey, no, Monday, be all right. Yeah, all right, good. Look, Monday's fine with me. The terminology is then, because if you don't pay me the money on Monday, it's out of my hands. That's the terminology. That's what's said. No more, no less. No aggravation, no none. It's out of my hands. Okay? Monday, the guy is scheduled to come and give you the money. Fine. Sunday, when he's mowing his fucking lawn in front of his house and say, I said, you get out of a car and go, hey, Bobby, good to see you. I'll see you tomorrow at 3 o'clock, right? That's all you got to do. He's mowing his lawn. There's the guy. It's out of my hands. Monday, the guy comes in and pays you. You understand? Well, that's without threatening anybody, without doing anything like that. That's the terminology. All right? People, um, they, they, look, they, there's a whole, that's a whole other universe of thinking there. And if you want to go there, right, about collecting money and borrowing money, gambling, that's a whole... That's a whole here's, other Here's what I want to do. I think this was a good session. We knocked out an hour. We knocked out an hour virtually. It's a pleasure good. to have you back on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Very nice. I know, you're working, I know you're working on some interesting stuff. Yeah, I'm interested. Yeah, if this world ever gets going again. <laughs> and we're, we're looking forward to it. I'm, I'm excited about it. I, yeah, hopefully things, I mean, if you had to guess, how long do you think we're going to be like this? Month, two months? But look, that's again, that would be absolute conjecture on my part. I mean, we, we, you know, they're going to look at it in another couple of weeks. Let's hope that this, this uh, uh, 
this 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 cloud passes over us. We got Passover and Easter coming up. Right over I your head. Kind, of, kind of weird, isn't it? That you're know, having this pestilence pass over us, much like you know, as 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 in the nothing happens by Jewish holiday. Uh, hopefully, in another couple of weeks, the smoke will have settled a little bit. A little be a little clearer as to where we're going or what's going on with the world and in general and our country specifically. But we just got to tough it out. Wash your hands. Keep your hands away from your face like you're doing right now. Okay? I mean, it's very simple stuff. It's very simple stuff. Clean everything. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, clean everything if, you know, if you've had strangers in. You know, I mean, everybody's nah, nah. everything. You know, you I'm going to gonna take a little bit of a risk today. I, I'm, I'm, I'm low on cigars, and there's a store down the block. Yeah. The only reason they're open is they're a liquor store. Yes, I understand. Which is considered essential because it people is. getting fucking drunk is going <laughs> to keep them. It's going to keep them from not touching their face, from not making stupid decisions. But whatever, that's all another debate. In any event, they sell cigars there. Right. So what they're doing is they're not letting anybody into the store. Not even allowed to exchange cash. You got to put your fucking credit card against the window. Oh, they're really? Typing, they're typing in the numbers. They're not even letting you touch the fucking machine. Makes sense. You're picking out what you want. There's a guy in the back that puts it through a fucking window and you leave. No, no, no contact whatsoever. So he puts the cigar thing in front of me. He goes, what do you want? I'll take one of those, one of those. And, they put, and I only take the ones that are wrapped in plastic. I'm not, I'm not taking any chances. Right. When I get the ones that are wrapped in plastic, I wipe them down with Clorox wipes. And that's how I'm smoking my cigars. Oh, that's great. And then you get nice, pure cancer in the lungs. It's wonderful. <laughs> well, it's in plastic, yeah. <laughs> it's not. You understand? It's not. God forbid the coronavirus would be on your cancer. <laughs> you fucking nuts or what? Hey, what you, what you, what, what have you been eating like during this? Uh, you cooking, she's cooking, you're both cooking. I mean, you like to cook? My wife and I, yeah, 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 yeah. No, we have, uh, you know, we, she makes steaks and she makes... Last week we ate too much. Last week we had great steak. One of the best steaks I ever had. She bought three big steaks. And then uh, we had uh, Sunday we had uh, uh, we had sausage and, uh, and ravioli. Big salad. Very nice. 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 You know, but no, I've been, I've been going out working out every day. I mean, the, the thing is I can't come out of the other side of this. You know, You're listening to me. You are, and I've said it many times and I'll say it again. You're in amazing shape for your age. Amazing shit. Thank you. Well, okay. working on it all I know fucking seventy-five year olds. They can't fucking go to the bathroom. Okay, so it's just well, well, they can. They can still go to the bathroom. The thing is, they got to get their pants down in time. That's the problem. They gotta. They gotta. Pee, they gotta. Hey, they gotta put their depends on. Fucking head there it is. Boom. <laughs> that was from the cooler. Boom. Fucking <laughs> great scene, man. All right, go. Listen, we get the hell out. Go, go take care of your family. I love Martha, you. It's Come lunchtime. Us. Go enjoy yourself. Thank you for checking in on us. Hopefully, okay. maybe we do another one. If this thing drags out, hopefully we get you back on and talk about some other cool stuff. What, what, I, what I feel. What I feel. You stay in touch with me. I love you. you. I love you. I owe you, I owe you an amazing dinner, and uh, thanks for being a part of the comeback. We are going to have such a good time in that state joint when we finally well, get sprung. We're gonna go good. Maybe hey, we take we take the wives of us. Yeah, fine. That's that's terrific. But you got to promise not to fight with them at the table. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm going for a good time. I don't want to see an argument. That can watch <laughs> my wife, so that no, no, we're good. We're good. I love you, buddy.
I love you too, brother. Have a great day, all right? Be well. God bless. And fans, hey, everybody watching, thank you so much. Be safe. Be happy. And thanks for being with you. Thanks God. All right, I'll give it to you. Go wrong with it. Another episode, the 20th episode. I'm happy. Arthur has been a, a big piece of the show for me. Morale-wise, I can't thank him enough. And uh, in these hard times right now, where I'm having trouble even getting guests to come on through a phone. I mean, listen, people are... Arthur, people are sad right now. You know, I, I had some amazing interviews scheduled. So to have Samantha Barbash, the movie Hustler that Jennifer Lopez did, was based on her life. And I asked her, you know, do you want to at least maybe we'll do it to the phone? She goes, I just... You know, people are having a hard time out there. So I want to thank you for, for giving me your time. and uh, My pleasure, buddy. I can never repay you, brother. I love you. Thank you so much. There's no repay. Just enjoy yourself and let everybody have a good time with this. We'll come back. Give us, give us just a little, a little, give us a little shot of the picture. I love it. Can you give us a little, what? A, little pan, a little pan of that picture with the boat? Can we kind of get a, can we get a good shot of it? Is there a way? Just kind of, is that the whole picture? Is just a boat in the clouds? Yeah, I love it. I love it. What a great piece that is. Really, really nice. I love it. It's 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 to the imagination. You know. Well, that's my wife. My wife saw. It. She loved that I bought it for. Okay, it's close. She got oh. great taste. Great piece. Yeah, I love it. Stuff. Yeah, it's great. It's got a very warm feeling to it. <laughs> so so is she. She's so much fun. Fantasy. Oh, I know. Like, Go ahead, Arthur. Ciao. Ciao, my son. Love and that's it folks this is Beck Lover 20th episode in quarantine in April I want to thank all of you who have been watching the show I've made a lot of mistakes up until now I'm going to continue getting better God willing we will get through this crisis we will get through this pandemic and when we do get through this troubling time remember one thing no matter what happens to you, no matter what has happened to us, as long as we stay strong, as long as we stay positive, as long as we remember that no matter what, we're gonna die also one day, that life is a war we must continue to fight. No matter what happens to you in this life, just remember one thing, you can always make a comeback. This is Beck Lover. Subscribe, comment, pass the word. Thank you for your support. 